the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. We have a great program. Uh, We will catch up with my old friend John Cribb. His book, of course, is called The Rail Splitter. The Rail Splitter. It's out in a few weeks on Abe Lincoln. It's phenomenal. He's great, and we're looking forward to uh, I'm looking forward to talking to him. And then Brett Atterbury. Brett Atterbury is a pro-life leader from Texas, Dallas, Texas. He runs a big pregnancy resource center, um, and he's a very interesting guy. He's written a book called Your Pro-Life Bottom Line. I think it will surprise you what he recommends uh, if you want to help be pro-life. You want to be pro-life. Very interesting guy. Uh, I am looking forward to talking with him. I've uh, got my way most of the way through the book, as you know. Um, so looking uh, forward to that. Hey, I'm... Um, Tomorrow, we will talk with Christina Bob. She is the uh, Trump lawyer, worked for Donald Trump, former Marine, uh, worked for One America News, uh, a lawyer, a very impressive lady. You probably have seen her out and about on uh, TV and all. She's got a book out, and her book is uh, called Stealing Your Vote, uh, What the Inside Story of the 2020 Election and What It Means for 2024, Skyhorse Publishing. Uh, it be very interesting to hear uh, from her. We'll look forward to that. And I have to tell you, I spent some time with a friend of mine. I guess I won't say who that was, but uh, um, yeah, I won't say who that was. Uh, we were talking, though, about something called this Project 65, the Project 65, which is an effort by the Democrats, literally Democrats announced and raised money to target and punish uh, lawyers who uh, represented clients who were uh, standing up for their clients who were protesting, who were w- worried about the elections. And they, this is something that's unacceptable, uh, unacceptable um, to the left. And they're raising the cost, literally, of being a lawyer uh, who happens to take on conservative clients. It's a very good example of how raising the cost of something is meant to have an impact on other people. Meaning, if you're a young lawyer and you see Christina Bob, a very accomplished person, a major in the military, uh, you know, lawyer, all that, and you see, and, and, and uh, One America News journalist, award winning, uh, you know, very poised woman, attractive, and you see her getting bludgeoned, uh, figuratively, uh, by the media for representing her client, you say, I don't want to represent clients in politics. And this doesn't happen on the left. You can represent and defend Eric Swalwell. When he has a scandal over a Chinese spy, you can represent Bill Clinton over his picadillos, uh, whatever. You can do whatever you want to do, and you can be, you can represent Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton over the server. Uh, you can, it doesn't matter. And this is an ongoing effort to target the people who are willing to say and do the hard things. Meaning, if you're willing to say, uh, and say that the election in 2020 was troubling, and you're willing to do something about it, you're going to pay. You have to pay. That's the business model of the left right now. You have to pay. You have to pay a price. It's a disturbing thing. It's a very disturbing thing, um, and uh, we should be more concerned about it than I think uh, many people are. So there you have it. We'll talk with Christina Bob. I believe that's scheduled for uh, tomorrow, but I'll make sure uh, to bring that up again. All right. Um, a couple of things. Uh, today, what you need to know is 
it appears we are now fully in a proxy war with Russia. Now, my point here is not, well, no, I'm opposed to a proxy war with Russia. I am opposed. Um, I am not for invading other countries. I am not for the suffering of uh, innocence, et cetera, et cetera, all those caveats. But at this point, President uh, Biden has announced he's giving American tanks uh, to uh, the Ukrainians and uh, Europeans have followed our lead. Once we said it was okay, they're doing it too. The Germans, as well as uh, the Poles, I think the Poles are are using, they have German tanks, they're giving them the tanks, and so is Germany. But basically, we're giving the Ukrainians offensive weapons. Until now, we have been, I think, at least able to say with something of a straight face, we're kind of giving you weapons to defend yourself. I know there have been some missiles and things, but now we're saying we're going to arm you with tanks. This will allow you to escalate the war. That this is now a proxy war. It's no longer a war where you know we have some interest. It's a proxy war and we're fighting Russia. This is a terrible idea. And here's the thing. The Americans don't want it. They don't want it. The fact is this that uh as I think it was Matt Gates said, we've given over 100 billion dollars to the Ukraine and we know less about where they're spending their money than America. And the, the, the reality is we, are, we have no accountability, no transparency. We don't know what's happening there. And we're pouring money in, and now we're giving them tanks. We're giving them tanks on top of it. It's a terrible, terrible idea. It's an idea that I really wish that there would be a, a broader discussion amongst the citizens. Um, and I say this as, as everybody knows. I'm, a, I'm conservative, so I tend to lean Republican. But the Republican Party is largely on board with this proxy war with Russia. And you say to yourself, why are we doing this? What is it? What's in our interest? Is it that we somehow feared the, the Russians? Do we really fear them? I mean, we should fear that they have nuclear weapons. But did we really fear them? I, 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 I find the, the Chinese regime, the communist regime in China, much more troubling, much more problematic. I think most normal people do. You know, I, I had someone say to me, it's an interesting uh, thought experiment. Think about the number of people who, and you, you, let's say you have to be about 50 years old um, or older to remember this well. But starting in the 1970s and all the way through into the 90s, if you were studying, studying international affairs, you, you, there was a slight diversion to study Japan because of their uh, manufacturing success. And there was lots of people. In fact, I, I, uh, I think when I was talking with... Uh, um, was I talking with one of the, the, uh, the Brett Atterbury, who's going to be our guest in a few minutes where I was talking to one of his friends and looked at his bio. He, he studied, uh, um, Japanese. And a lot of people study Japanese, but from the 1970s through about the mid nineties, the number one topic of international study was Russia, Soviet studies. People studied Russian language and they studied the Soviet Union. And they studied the contours of the Soviet Union, its history, what had happened, all the different aspects of it. They studied the, the history of the, of the, uh, of the political regimes there and the Marxism and all this stuff. How many of those people who studied and did master's degrees and, and PhDs in Soviet studies in the late eighties and the nineties are still in the State Department, are still in the CIA? And what they know, if, if everything, if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. You know what I mean? What you need to know is right now how many people are Soviet experts and therefore they see the threat in the world as Russia. Because I see the threat in the world as China. 
and the fact that TikTok is changing our brains and that China is stealing our intellectual property and that China's patent system is uh, totally corrupt and on and on and fentanyl is raiding our country. On and on and on. Right? And yet, somehow, the people with power have us focused dramatically on Russia. Russia, Russia, Russia. Now, I hope that the result of this proxy war is that somehow we drain the so the Russians of any, you know, uh military might they might have, but we won't drain them of their nukes. I mean, if you're the Ru- if you're the Russians, you can you can drop down from how many thousands? How many thousands of nuclear weapons uh does the does the Russian does the the Russian army have? I mean, it's it, it, I think it I think the number that I had in my head was 30 yeah, 35,000. 35,000. I believe that's somewhere I was going to say 30,000. Um but that they're they're the um the reality is we don't even know by the way. Um we don't even know for sure. And uh, but we know that they have oh, so I'm sorry. Well, let me say it differently. Looks like 6,000 is the number that people say. But let's say they drop down to 600 or 60. If you have 60 nukes and you're able to keep the nuclear arsenal of 60 aimed the right ways, able to be used the right ways, I think that's about the same as having 6,000. And my point here is we don't win by degrading the Russian economy, by degrading the Russian people. We don't win that way. We don't win the the, the nuclear problem. Well, uh, let me say it differently. We don't solve the nuclear problem that way. In fact, I would say that chances are high that if you degrade the Soviet Union, the Russians enough, you drive them into the arms of the Chinese. I think that's, I think that's the most likely scenario. I really do. I really do. I think that's the most likely scenario and one that we should be more worried about, uh, than people are willing to, uh, to pay attention to, to pay attention to. It's, uh, it's a, um, it's a problem. So there you have it. All right, we're going to watch that. But that's the news. Uh, Joe Biden announcing dramatically. He's a he's a big war fighter. He's sending tanks uh, to another country to fight a proxy war uh, with a nuclear power. Huh. Doesn't sound good to me. All right, when we come back, we will uh, talk with, as I mentioned, we will visit with John Cribb, my friend, and then Brett Atterbury. So come on back for that. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. We will be back in a moment. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on a Pro-America Report. Time to check in with John Cribb. John Cribb, of course, is the author of the book Old Abe, a widely uh, acclaimed novel about President Abraham Lincoln, his years as president. Uh, got a lot of attention. Uh, really, Republic uh, book publishers did that one, Old Abe. And now, a couple years later, John Cribb is out with his newest one. It's called The Rail Splitter. The Rail Splitter. And as you get ready for uh, President's Day, it used to be called Lincoln's Birthday, Washington's Birthday. Now we do President's Day. But uh, if you want to focus in on Lincoln, the rail splitter uh, talks about Lincoln's life up to the years um, that he is president um, when he becomes president. So when he was a boy and uh, in his um, youth and practicing law in uh, Springfield, Illinois. So welcome back, John Cribb. How are you? 
I'm good, Ed. Thanks for having me. Uh, so, John, um, I, one thing I wanted to ask you, I was looking at my notes in preparation because I, I have you on frequently and I like talking to you about this, but um, Lincoln has a lot of books written about him, right? I think maybe, you tell me, maybe more than almost any other president by now, certainly Lincoln um, lore is really, really popular. Um, how is how is the historical novel, the two now that you've done, how is that perceived by Lincoln, Lincolnistas? I don't know. And, and then second, is there a fraternity of Lincoln um, writers, are you welcomed into that, or is there not such a thing? Are you unwelcome? Uh, what's the story with uh, the attention on Lincoln from authors? Yeah, there's a definitely a fraternity of, of just Lincoln people. Um, I don't, I, don't I'm, I guess, writers to some degree and historians, oh. um, but Lincoln, you know, just people who love Lincoln, and uh, it's a very welcoming uh, community. And one of the great things about Lincoln, and you are. They're, they're, they say there are more books written about Lincoln than anybody except uh, in history, except Jesus Christ. Some people say maybe Churchill, but I think probably Lincoln more. Uh-huh. And um, but it, and thousands and thousands of them. Several years ago, somebody counted and counted fifteen thousand Lincoln books. That was way. That was more than ten years ago. I, the latest figures I've seen are like twenty five thousand. But mm. and most of them nonfiction. Um, overwhelming, overwhelming number of nonfiction. But the really interesting thing is that the, the the field of Lincoln studies, Lincoln, you know, just Lincoln, the yeah. world of Lincoln has always been open to amateurs, uh, you know, just people who love Lincoln. And some of the, you know, most highly regarded and famous Lincoln biographies, for example, have been written by people who aren't necessarily trained historians like Classic examples: Carl Sandburg's, uh, mm. uh, you know, award-winning Pulitzer Prize-winning uh, biography from about a hundred years ago, I guess now. So um, it's a very welcoming community. Th- this is a different approach, uh, looking at his life via historical fiction, and uh, so far it's been well received. I haven't heard anybody object. It's interesting. I think that these two books taken together, *The Rail Splitter* and, and *Old Abe*, are the only telling of Lincoln's whole life from his youth on the frontier through the end, through his death, uh, in the uh, historical fiction like this. Now, I know there, I'm sure there are children's books, there's some picture books, and you have books for young people that right. take an uh, overview of his whole life. But this, uh, as far as I know, is the only uh, novelization of his life using full blown historical fiction uh, like this, at least in recent memory. You mentioned uh, Sandberg, and uh, and actually, I, I looked it up as we're talking because I couldn't believe it. You're right. Um, uh, Carl Sandberg's Lincoln, uh, the first were, uh, the first one in the Prairie Years, was out in 1926. Um, so it is almost yeah. 100 years. It's incredible. Um, and then he had another uh, uh, War Years of uh, four uh, four volumes out about 15 years later. Um, I guess 13 years later. Yeah. Um, is the uh, how does I, I, I got to be honest. I never read Sandberg at all. I mean, I, I, I read more of the modern um, depictions. How does uh, how did you what did you rely on when you did this? I mean, is that is that um, were you back into Sandberg? Is that the starting point for a lot of the scholarship and for this kind of thing? Or what did what what, what was your research sort of um, um, uh, pathway in these books? Yeah. Well, it's a, that's an interesting question because, uh, first of all, Sandberg is a landmark biography um, because he wrote it before a lot of the a lot of the Lincoln papers were st- still sealed uh, when he wrote 
for example, the prairie years, uh, Robert Lincoln, Lincoln's only surviving son, had had sealed uh, his father's papers. I've forgotten for how many years, but they weren't available yet. And other stuff wasn't available. So for that reason, and, and some others, I think mean, Sandberg wrote with the soul of a poet, um, his uh, biographies are are good and they're accurate, and but they're not quite as accurate as some more recent uh, works hmm. uh, because of evolving scholarship, simply. Right. Uh, so there is that. But it may be, especially those first two volumes, The Prairie Years, are just beautifully, beautifully written. They really are. Um, Sandberg inspired me uh, to write uh, these two books because I was actually reading, I was reading through those six volumes way back in 2006. Um, and uh, for the first time, I checked the books out of a library. I now own a set, but I did. And uh, at the same time, I reread, uh, I don't know if you've ever read it, but Irving Stone's uh, wonderful historical novel about Michelangelo, The Agony and the Ecstasy, um, which oh, yes. I had read in yes. high school. Just, yes, yeah. yes, yes, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Well, as you know, it, it just tells the story of Michelangelo's life in, in historical fiction. And that's what gave me, I just started thinking, well, I wonder if I could do the same thing for Lincoln. Has anybody ever done this before? And the answer was no. And that's kind of what set me down this uh, this path. Um, but as far as the research that I relied on, I've, you know, I've got easily 250 books about Lincoln on my bookshelves at home. A lot of, <laughs> a lot of them are old books right. written by people who knew Lincoln and wrote, you know, firsthand accounts of their dealings with him, their conversations with him. I, I drew as much as possible on primary, you know, primary source uh, documents. Uh, uh, but some, in some ways, Sandberg was the beginning of this book for me. Uh, we're talking again with John Cribb. Uh, he is the author of The Rail Splitter, just out in time for President's Day and for uh, Lincoln's birthday. Uh, a novel of Abraham Lincoln, a second uh, uh, book, um, goes goes ahead of uh, the first one in time, though. The first one's called Old Abe, both from Republic, uh, Republic uh, Book uh, Publishers. Uh, by the way, to pause and drop a footnote here, The Agony and the Ecstasy is extraordinary, and and I didn't know yeah. that about you. It's I remember reading it. I'd lived in Italy for a few years and had not read it, and it was years later, probably in the early 2000s, I read it. It's Irving Stone, who I don't think I knew or know now what else uh, he had written uh, or done, but it is really, it's, as you mentioned, it's a, a biographical novel uh, which is part of the thing, I think part of the reason I like yours, it, it, it's just moves along. You're getting a lot of history, but it moves along uh, of uh, of Michelangelo. I mean, just extraordinary. Yeah, that's that's incredible that that uh, was something that you uh, were drawn to. Okay, um, one more question on this, ex- the, uh, the acceptance of these books. Uh, are there people, Lincoln people, that are snobs? I mean, it's got to be some snobs. And do they look down on the idea of a novel? You know, I haven't run across that. I mean, it may be they're not. There are some that are just aren't telling me that, and you know, and there are Lincoln people that you know have written books, and they all think that their their books are the you know probably the best book. But but I you know have always said that this this is a different animal. It's an historical novel, and I've told people, look, you know, I, I drew as much as possible on actual dialogue to build my dialogue for words that Lincoln wrote and said, and others, and but. I've used my imagination to fill in the gaps. So, you know, if you want to quote Lincoln, don't go to this. Go to a, you know, a great one of the great Lincoln historians like um, Alan Gelzo or Michael Burlingame or you know, um, there there there's several uh, Ronald White. There there's several really great fine nonfiction uh, Lincoln biographies out there. Which is one reason I didn't try to write one. I, you know, the world doesn't need my nonfiction Lincoln biography. But it, but this this was a gap uh, yeah. as far as I could tell in the Lincoln literature, and I wanted to fill it. Um, okay. Unfortunately, you made me ask one more question that's not inside the book. I'll get back to the book. Are there other, when you look at other figures now, John Cribb is our guest. He's, he's trained as an attorney. Now he's an author. He's, um, a lot.
lot of different things in your life. Um, but now you look, are there other figures where you say to yourself, you know, the, the context, the sort of contours you get by treating them with a historical novel, that's missing. Is there somebody, I mean, is there a, I don't know, is there a George Washington novel that's like this? I don't know the answer to that question. I haven't really turned that my attention to that. And it's a great, it's a great question. Uh, there are lots of figures out there. And there were, you know, Irving Stone did this with yeah. several people. Yeah. yeah. I think Michelangelo's, Agnieszka's is, to, to my knowledge, his greatest, you know, the best one. He actually did Mary Lincoln. Uh, he never did Abraham Lincoln, but he did one on Mary Lincoln. Hmm. Um, and, but I don't, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, there are lots of them. I've always been intrigued with, with, the idea of, of doing something like this with St. Paul, I think, would be a fantastic book. But boy, would that be a, a load of research. <laughs> yeah, that's, um, another, that's, another, that's but, another lifetime. Yeah. You're going to need another. You're going to need to make a deal with somebody else to have another lifetime. Uh, yeah. <laughs> hey, 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 John, uh, John Cribb, the book is The Rail Splitter. Um, when I looked at this book, so we're talking about The Rail Splitter goes up until the time where uh, Lincoln starts to run for president and Old Abe picks up your other book. What's what? Is there one moment where you th- when you looked at this? This period where if it had gone differently, everything would have changed me. I know that's a silly question, but meaning was there a moment where he could have gone and become the railroad lawyer and become the CEO of the railroad or uh, decided to move yeah. to New York City because that's where the, the more lucrative uh, law practice was? Or is there one moment where you say maybe it's not the pivotal moment, but it's a moment where he could have ended up, you know, a I don't know, a, a Denver lawyer. I don't know if you know Denver, how Denver was. Yeah, about, but in his life. Well, I, that's interesting, and actually, I don't mention this in, in, in the novel, but he was invited to come practice law in Chicago by some of his uh, legal oh. friends up there, and turned oh. him down. He 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 wrote him a letter saying, "No, I would have to." He said, "I, I, I think I think you would have to work too much, or something like that, or I'd have to, you know, start over or something." But um, he uh, he you know he wanted to practice in Springfield. Um, there were several turning points in his life, uh, and you can go back. Like earlier than that, um, uh, you know, historians have pointed to the wrestling match he had with Jack Armstrong um, in that little village of New Salem uh, that he lived in as a young man for about six years. And he shows up and there's a, a, a gang of good natured rowdies in town that want to size him up and they challenge him to this this wrestling match. And Lincoln realizes if he doesn't uh, accept it, he's going to uh, they're going to brand him as a coward. And so he says, yeah, I'll, I'll wrestle your village champion. And they they do wrestle, and people come from miles around to see him. And the way he handles himself, I think, is what wins their hearts. Hmm. And uh, that that could have gone very differently if he just said no. Then you know, then if he said no, I'm not going to wrestle you. Then the, the people of New Salem may very well never have come to him and said, "We'd like you to represent us in, in the state house." That's how he got into politics. Um, so, you know, Lincoln was actually very good at stepping up to, to challenges that came his way and seizing opportunities uh, that came his way. He was he was really good at that. And that's 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 one example of uh, a turning point in his life where, you know, it could have gone a different direction just based on a decision he made. 
Yeah. All right, John Cribb. Uh, the book is The Rail Splitter. Uh, I think I asked you way too many questions about how you why you wrote it, but anyway, that still gives the context. The Rail Splitter, a novel of Abraham Lincoln by John Cribb. He's a New York Times bestselling author. His, his previous book, Old Abe, is excellent. Both of them are great for coming up to President's Day and Lincoln's birthday. Uh, Republic Book Publishers. Thank you, John, as always. And I used to tease you after Old Abe, were you going to write another A book or what you're going to do? I don't. I don't even want to ask you yet. I'll let you enjoy this book launching, and we'll come back around to that. So thanks. <laughs> for your time uh, thank you Ed. thanks very much all right john crib everybody i'll put it up on social media we will take a break and be right back it's ed martin here on the pro america report back in a moment Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. I have uh, last week, uh, we talked a couple of times about the March for Life and a lot of the pro-life groups who are in. And uh, my friend Karen Garnett, who has been on the radio show, I don't know, three or four or five times, uh, and I met face-to-face for the first time. And we were talking about that. And she said, I brought you a book. I brought you a gift. And she pulled out of her purse a gift. And I said to her later, I was teasing her, you know, like that's the greatest uh, sort of um, sales thing to ever do because I, I was so nice. I've, I'd never seen her in person she gives me a gift i went home that night i read the first couple of chapters and then i the next day i read some more all because i knew i'd see her at the march for life so uh, the beneficiary of all of her effectiveness is uh brett uh, atterbury well we'll see if he thinks he's a beneficiary uh he's our guest today he's the author of a book your pro-life bottom line how you can help end abortion by investing in groundbreaking consumer marketing strategies that encourage women to choose life uh so welcome brett to the program thank Thank you for taking the time and thank you for writing this book. Thank you, Ed. Thank you for having me today. I appreciate it. Well, and so it's a good, it's a great topic, and it's a great topic and a great time for this topic, sort of post Roe v. Wade, Dobbs. Mm-hmm. A lot of people, even just today, unrelated to anything, a friend of mine who's in a different field brought up the fact that what are, what are you pro-lifers going to do now? You know, what's going to come next? And mm-hmm. uh, we'll get to that. But in your book, I don't know, towards the end, one of the chapters, you did what I love happens is took something that's happening in my life and many people's and talked about it uh, on this topic. And that was Shark Tank. Shark Tank seems to have exploded now. Everybody's watched it or watching it, including my family. And you say, imagine a a new show, Shark Tank for pro-life pregnancy centers. So, so Brett, that's about the size of the book in the sense that you're saying, hey, think about this not as a moral issue, although it is, not as a theological issue, though it may be, usually is for many people, not even as a political issue. You're saying, think of it like you're, you're trying to sell something. I, I think that's really, really important. And, and I think a lot of people, uh, in the movement of conservatism, of issues, of pro-life, they default to sincerity, I'm right, mm-hmm. over success, which is figuring out how to make make things happen. Yeah, Ed, I've, I've, I've been at this for about 10 years, and I know, obviously, as you do, many people in pro-life, and their passion is incredible. It's amazing. Yep. But I often feel like they give to pro-life in the same way they might tie the church, right? Uh, they know they're supposed to do it. They look at it as a ministry, which in many senses, pro-life pregnancy centers are ministries. Right. But they don't really think about, oh, what am I getting for this? And 
I, in my view as a businessman, I, I have a business background. It's like if I'm going to give something, I don't just want to engage in what I guess I would call feel goodism. You know, I feel good that I gave. I want to see is it actually having an effect, especially in this particular area where we're talking about a woman choosing between life and choosing between death for the child that's growing in her womb. It's so important, in my view, that we think about that when we give to pro-life organizations, that we think about what kind of impact is this going to have when I invest in this organization. So that's why I came up with the Shark Tank example, which I I love Shark Tank, like many people do, because I think what Shark Tank does is it just gets down to the brass tacks, right? So you only have a, as you come on to present to the sharks, you only have a very short time to make your case. And then the sharks go right after like, well, okay, if I invest X, what am I going to get for that? And they expect some very good answers for that. I thought to myself, you know, with the 3,000 or so pregnancy help centers across the United States, if we had a similar type, um, I call it a show as it is in the book, but a similar type process where those centers had to earn our investments based on their plans and based on their results, that would really change the landscape and really force those pregnancy help centers to up their game in terms of their competitiveness against Planned Parenthood and other abortion clinics in the abortion industry. Uh, again, we're talking with uh, Brett Atterbury in his book, uh, again, which is available, Your Pro-Life Bottom Line, available, I, I saw it on Amazon, wherever you buy books. Uh, he has mentioned he comes out of the business world. Um, uh, actually, I was intrigued, yeah, my undergraduate major in economics, which is somewhat common, then French, but also uh, did another degree later with Japanese language over at Wharton, uh, University of Pennsylvania. So obviously in business for many years and, and credentialed there, ended up um, uh, deciding sort of mid-career or mid to late career to get into the pro-life fight. Um, one of the expertise it describes, uh, Brett, of your background, um, the way it says it is um, that you have a, a background in economics and consumer product marketing. So how do you, and I know the book does this a lot. This is kind of the, th- the major thrust of it, consumer product marketing. How does that apply to this situation? You got a, um, a woman, she's got an, uh, a pregnancy, whether it's a surprise, unwanted, whatever the phrase is, uh, untimely. And here we are. How does consumer product marketing fit in that? And how should we think differently about that moment uh, or those moments or that period of time and those participants if we're using your strategies? And I think the first thing that we have to be realistic about is that women have a choice. They are they do have the choice between choosing life and choosing an abortion. Now, we know as pro-lifers that morally it's a terrible choice, of course, to choose an abortion. It's an evil choice. Nonetheless, if I take off my moral hat and just put my business hat on and I look at the women out there every day who come into this situation where they're facing an unexpected pregnancy that causes them fear, they know at that moment that they have a choice. They have a choice of abortion services or choose life services. So when we get into the business world, as you know, Ed, and we start talking about choice, we're starting to move into the business realm of sales and marketing. And so in consumer product marketing, 
you and I and everyone else, when we come into the market for something, uh, we have a choice. And that and what we're going to choose comes down to a lot of factors. But it, in terms of any particular type of product or service, the, the service, the, the company that's going to win our business is typically the one that does the best job of marketing and sales toward us with whatever it is that we're looking to purchase. And so I kind of bring that into the book and talk about, let's just be realistic and honest that women have this choice. And to the extent that the pro-life movement, and I would say more particularly on the front lines, pregnancy help centers can up their game in terms of marketing, especially brand marketing, we have a much better chance of getting many more women to come over to our side and choose life instead of going to Planned Parenthood and choosing abortion. Uh, again, Brett Atterbury is our guest, and his book is Your Pro-Life Bottom Line, available wherever books are. Or you can get a book anywhere and um, find it. Um, Brett, uh, you, you talk about, the, the in the book, you refer to, you know, and again, your experience, I mentioned he's a businessman and has uh, left business and is uh, heading up a in pro-life work, uh, you know, um, an organization that's re- trying to reduce the demand for abortion, trying to do what you said. So this is right in where you're doing. You're not writing about, hey, this is what you ought to do. This is what you're you're trying to do and what you're uh, living to do. Um, you write about the woman, and I think that there's a piece of this that you're getting to, and I'm feeling, and I'm hearing, um, which is, uh, it's the woman's choice. I know it sounds terrible, ridiculous, but the woman is in the position where everything in her life is upside down um, if she has a baby. And uh, and Planned Parenthood, I think, and, and now, so the, I have two parts to this question. One is... Does Planned Parenthood and the pro-abortion folks, do they do a good job of branding themselves as solving your problem? Uh, and, and I don't know if they do, but that's sort of what they want to do, right? You have a, you have some, um, some issues, you know, you get the issues worked out. No big deal. We'll move on. I think they do, but you, you tell me if it's working. Uh, but the second thing is, how do you get, um, in a world where people love to say it's a life, how do you get to make people say, I hate to just say this, and Brett, you to tell me about it. It sounds wrong, but I think, you know, I can get, get away with it. Mom first. I mean, before you get to the kid, you better be talking about the mom because mom's going to make the decision about her own life and the kid's life. So it's a life is secondary to mom first. I, I think that's hard for people that really care about life to hear or think through. But that's the way it is at this moment, especially in this moment in history. It's very hard to hear because the pro-life movement, understandably, is steeped in the human rights activism part of pro-life. It's a, it's, it's a morally evil thing to take the life of an innocent human being. But what has happened is, is that's become the habit of thinking, I, w- I would claim, in pro-life over the last 50 years, is people forget exactly what you just talked about. It's still the mom who is going to make that choice whether she is going to choose life or have an abortion. And if we if we step back and realize that and just accept that for what it is, it's a reality, then it moves us into a little bit of different space, which, as you said, if we make the mom first, if we put her first, if we put our efforts into her first, how do we what do we do? 
What does our services look like? How do we brand that? How do we go beyond just offering basic help and move all the way into empowerment so that we can help her, coach her, mentor her, her onto a path where she's achieving what we all really want in life, Ed, and that is joy and happiness. How do we do that? That's really what our product in the pro-life pregnancy center movement should look like. And so if we can make that shift, and I'm not saying it's we're completely void of that, but we don't put nearly enough emphasis on that. To get to your question about Planned Parenthood's yeah, branding, please, yep. one of the reasons Planned Parenthood's branding is so powerful is because it's very simple. They never even talk about the preborn baby. They just talk about the woman. And and that's right there. They already have an advantage over the pro-life movement, which tends to talk about both, but probably focuses a lot more on the preborn baby. So in marketing and sales, the worst thing you can do is confuse your consumer. So we confuse our consumer because on the one hand, we're talking about the baby. And then sometimes we also talking about helping the woman. Planned Parenthood is all in on just talking about the woman. So already they've simplified the message. And their message is very powerful. As I write about it in the book, they don't necessarily say it this way, but subconsciously what they're saying is, I call it the time machine product. We can take you back to the way things were before this happened to you. Wouldn't you like that? And that's a very powerful proposition. It's a very powerful branding, consumer marketing proposition. And that's what we have to deal with. So, so right now, we really haven't done a good job as an, on the front lines as the pro-life pregnancy help center movement of powerfully countering that. I would say the only exception to that, Ed, which is uh, an organization you know very well, which is Thrive in St. Louis, which took a branding approach and through that branding approach over about five to seven years, did such a good job at it that they actually did overtake Planned Parenthood and defeat them in St. Louis. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, um, yeah, and Thrive is extraordinary, and Bridget Van Means, their leader, is a is great great example, too. But I think she takes seriously that the point you, you have made in your book and you're making here. Um, I do think that the other side, uh, meaning the people that promote abortion, they have an advantage. And one of the advantages, I think they, they are willing to um, use the expertise of modern marketing, modern tools sometimes where, again, uh, and I'm I'm not I'm not, I'm guilty of it. I'm I'm someone who does it too. We're right. I mean, we know we're right. We know yeah. we're righteous. But sometimes in the modern <laughs> moment, being right and being righteous, being sincere, doesn't uh, even not doesn't just guarantee success. It it doesn't uh, give you a chance to success. So uh, unfortunately, Brett, I've got to go. Brett Atterbury is uh, his name, uh, leading a pro life organization, and you'll hear more from him. The book is called Your Pro Life Bottom Line, uh, and it's excellently timed for this moment. Moment, available wherever you get books. And also, uh, I did see in there, Brett, that your own website, yeah, brettatterbury.com, B-R-E-T-T-A-T-T-E-B-E-R-Y, that second one. I always think there's a second R there. I'll put it up on social media. Thank you for your time. Well, we'll have you back on again. Appreciate you being out there and uh, bringing your perspective to your work. It's important. Thank you, Ed. I appreciate it. All right. We will take a break, everybody. And again, I'll put up on social media links to uh, the book as well as to his uh, website and uh, a lot more. We'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. We'll be back in a moment. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer San Diego. This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report. 
a daily broadcast from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, a national volunteer organization founded by Phyllis Schlafly and continuing to uphold her legacy by honoring family values, opposing radical feminism, and representing a conservative perspective in our nation's capital. And now, from the archives of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, here is Phyllis Schlafly. For nearly a generation, American parents have been infantilizing their children, shielding them from failure, and passing the blame to anybody but the child whenever the child has done something wrong. Awards for winning have been replaced by participation trophies, depriving kids of the valuable life lessons that come with failure. Bad grades are blamed on the teacher rather than the student, depriving young people of the push to reach their full academic potential. We are just now starting to see what this coddling has done to a generation of young people as they go off to college. Not surprisingly, the results are not good. College counseling offices are now swarming with students who cannot handle the smallest issues by themselves. In one instance, two students called 911 and sought counseling after seeing a mouse, claiming to have been traumatized by this. Dan Jones, the former president of the Association for University and College Counseling Center directors, hit the nail on the head when he said that the students have not developed the skills to soothe themselves because their parents have solved all their problems and removed all obstacles. They don't seem to have as much grit as previous generations. Another sign that American young people are not as resilient as they should be is the introduction of the concept of trigger warnings in classrooms. Trigger warnings are devices used to warn students when something a teacher might say could be physically or emotionally distressing. It's time for American colleges to stop coddling students and give them an education that includes all important topics, including those that are not politically correct. Students need to be allowed to fail so that they can learn the lessons that come with failure. This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report with Ed Martin, president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. If you're busy taking notes, you can stop now because these commentaries in written form and spoken audio are archived on the website phyllisschlafly.com, many recorded by Mrs. Schlafly herself. If you're doing research or missed a day, just go to phyllisschlafly.com. Thanks for listening and re-listening to the Phyllis Schlafly Report. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.